Chapter One of North Pole Voyages Embracing Sketches of the Important Facts and Incidents in the Latest American Efforts to Reach the North Pole from the Second Grinnell Expedition to That of the Polaris by Zaharia A. Mudge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. North Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. Chapter 1. Northward. The readers who have been with us before into the Arctic regions will recollect the good American brig Advance and her wonderful drift during five months in 1851 from the upper waters of the Wellington Channel until she was dropped in the Atlantic Ocean by the ice field which enclosed her. Dr. Kane, then her surgeon, took command of this same vessel in 1853 for another search for the lost Franklin. We have seen that the place of Franklin's disasters and death was found while Kane was away on this voyage, so the interest of the present story will not connect with that great commander, except in the noble purposes of its heroes. The advance left New York on the 30th of May, having on board all counted eighteen men. Kind hearts and generous purses had secured for her a fair outfit in provisions for the comfort of the adventurers, in facilities for fighting the ice and cold, and in the means of securing desired scientific results. Of the thousands who waved them a kind adieu from the shore, many said, sadly, they will never return. We shall make the acquaintance of the officers and men as we voyage with them, and a very agreeable acquaintance we are sure it will be. The rules by which all agreed to be governed were these, and no others. Absolute obedience to the officer in command. No profane swearing. No liquor drunk except by special order. The voyagers touched at St. John's, and among other kindnesses shown them, was the gift by the governor of a noble team of nine Newfoundland dogs. At Fiskernees, the first Greenland port which they entered, they added to their company Hans Christian, an Eskimo hunter, nineteen years of age. Hans was expert with the Eskimo spear and kayak. He will appear often in our story, and act a conspicuous part. He at once, however, prepossesses us in his favor by stipulating with Dr. Kane to leave two barrels of bread and fifty pounds of pork with his mother, in addition to the wages he is to receive. The doctor made his cup of joy overflow by adding to these gifts to his mother the present for himself of a rifle and new kayak. The expedition next touched at Lichtenfels. Dr. Kane obtained here a valuable addition to his outfit of fur clothing. Stopping at Proven, a supply of Eskimo dogs was completed. Lying too briefly at Upernavik, the most northern port of civilization, their equipment in furs, ice tools, and other necessary articles known to Arctic voyagers was rendered still more complete. At this last port the services of Carl Peterson were engaged for the expedition. We have met this intelligent, heroic Dane 
among our Arctic heroes. He will for a long time appear in the shifting scenes of our story. On the 27th of July, the advance drew near to Melville Bay. The reader who has accompanied the earlier Arctic explorers into this region will remember their terrific experience in this bay. Every Arctic enemy of the navigator lurks there. Their attacks are made singly and in solid combinations. At one time they steal upon their victim like a Bengal tiger. At other times they rush upon him with a shout and yell, like a band of our own savages. Giant icebergs, fierce storms, cruel nips, silent, unseen, irresistible currents, with ever-changing treacherous packs and flows, and the all-pervading, relentless cold, are some of these enemies. A favorite movement of these forces is to so adjust themselves, as to promise the advancing explorer or whaler a speedy and complete success, then suddenly changing front, to crush and sink him at once, or to bind him in icy fetters, a helpless, writhing victim, for days, weeks, or months, and finally, perhaps, to bury both ship and men in the dark, deep waters of the bay. The advance was at this time treated by these guardians of the approach to the North Pole with exceptional courtesy. We suspect that they secretly purposed to follow them into more northern regions, and there to attack them at even greater advantage. This they certainly did. But just to show them what it could and was minded to do, the evil spirit of the bay invited them at one time to escape impending danger by fastening to a huge berg. This they did, after eight hours of warping, heaving, and planting ice anchors, a labor of prostrating exhaustion. Hardly had they begun to enjoy the invited hospitality of the berg when it began to shower upon them, like big drops from a summer cloud, pieces of ice the size of a walnut, accompanied by a crackling, threatening noise from above. A gale from out of its hiding place on shore came sweeping upon them at the same time, driving before it its icy supporter. Mischief was evidently intended. The advance retreated from the berg with all possible haste, and had barely gone beyond its reach when it launched after it its whole broadside, which came crashing into the water with a roar, like a whole park of artillery. Could anything be rougher? But then it was true to its icebergy character. The advance was not injured, but the ice held as a trophy more than two thousand feet of good whale line, which had to be cut in the retreat. These bergs, though thus harsh and treacherous as a rule, can do a generous thing. Maybe, like some people, they are all the more dangerous on account of exceptional generosity. The loose ice, soon after this incident, was drifting south, and would have borne the navigators with it back from whence they had come, perhaps for hundreds of miles. But a majestic berg came along whose sunken base took hold of the deep-water current, and so, impelled by this current, it sailed grandly northward, sweeping a wide path through the rotten flows. 
it condescendingly offered to do tugboat service for the advance, and invited its captain to throw aboard an ice anchor. We wonder he dared to trust it, but he did, and grappling its crystal sides made good headway for a while, until other means of favorable voyaging were presented. Soon after the explorers parted from this burgy friend, the midnight sun came out over its northern crest, kindling on every part of its surface, fires of varied colors, and scattering over the ice all around blazing carbuncles, sparkling rubies, and molten gold. August 5th, the advance, fairly clearing the hated Melville Bay, sailed along the western coast of the north water of Buffin Bay. At Northumberland Island, at the mouth of Whale Sound, their eyes were again delighted by an exhibition of beautiful colors, delicately tinted, but this time not made by a gorgeous sunrise over a gigantic iceberg. The snow of the island and its vicinity bore, over vast areas, a reddish hue, and great patches of beautiful green mosses broke its monotony, while here and there the protruding sandstone threw in a rich shading of brown. So God paints the dreariest lands in colors of great beauty, and scatters over them profusely, at times, the richest sunlit gems. On the 6th of August they passed the frowning headland of Smith's Sound, known as Cape Alexander. It stands like the charged trunk and limbs of some mighty oak, at the entrance of an unexplored, gloomy forest, seen in the murky darkness. Cape Alexander seemed a mighty sentinel of evil purpose, toward all who dared pass to the mysterious regions beyond. It inspired the sailors with superstitious fear, and admonished their officers that eternal vigilance must be the price of safety in the waters beyond. Arriving at Littleton Island, our explorers built a monument of stones, as a conspicuous object from the sea, surmounted by the stripes and stars, put under it a record of their voyage thus far, and, two miles north and east, upon the mainland, deposited a metallic lifeboat, with provisions and various stores. These were for a resort in case of accident in their further progress. While making this deposit, they discovered the remains of Eskimo huts and graves of some of their former occupants. The dead had been buried in a sitting posture, their knees drawn close to their bodies. The few simple implements belonging to the deceased were buried with them. In one grave was a child's toy spear. So even the rude Eskimo child has its toys, and no doubt the mother looks upon its trinkets as she lays them beside its dead body with tearful interest. Soon after making these deposits in the lifeboat, the advance, while making a vigorous struggle with the broken ice, was borne into a landlocked eye inlet, which Dr. Kane called Refugee Harbor. It was rather a cozy place for an arctic shore, and in it the explorers waited for the movement of the ice. While here they were much annoyed by their dogs, fifty in number. Two bears had been shot, which were the only game which had been taken for them. They were now on short allowance, and were as ravenous as wolves. 
they gulped down almost anything which could go down their throats, even devouring at one time a part of a feather bed. Dr. Kane's specimens of natural history fared hard at their jaws. He happened once to set down in their way two nests of large sea-fowl. They were filled with feathers, filth, moss, and pebbles, a full peck, but the dogs made a rush for them and gobbled down the hole. There were plenty of wolves not far from the brig, on which they delighted to feed. But the hunters had no luck in trying to take them. Rifle balls glanced from their thick hides, as if they had been peas from a toy gun. They needed the Eskimo harpoon and the Eskimo skill. But fortunately a dead narwhal, or sea unicorn, was found. Under its soothing influence, when fed out to them, the dogs became more quiet. After remaining a few days at Refugee Harbor, a desperate push was made to get the vessel further north and east. For twelve days they manfully battled with the ice and made forty miles. This brought them to the bottom of a broad shallow bay, which they named Force Bay. Here they fastened the brig to a shelving rocky ledge near the shore. End of chapter 1